The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome again, everyone. Thanks to see everybody here tonight. And very grateful that you're here to this. One more time. Thank you. <laughs> we seem to, after a lot of uh, email tags, we seem to, every year or a year and a half, be able to find a time that Judith can come over from her busy schedule at Clouds and Water Zen Center. Some of you know that wonderful Dharma Center in the uh, warehouse district of St. Paul, downtown St. Paul. That's been around now for quite a while. Judith was one of the original members of the Minnesota Zen Teacher uh, Zen Center on the east side of Lake Calhoun. Practiced with Kedigiri Roshi for many years until he died in 89 or 90? 90. 1990. And then was part of forming Clouds and Water in the early years in the early 90s, mid-90s. And for the last four years has been the lead teacher at Clouds and Water Zen Center. And she teaches in the lineage of Kedigiri Roshi, um, who some of you know, know uh, either directly or through some of his books. So we're really grateful that you're here tonight, Judith. And uh, some of you know Judith has a kind of a wonderful background, being a mother and a Chinese medicine practitioner and an artist, dancer, and now a Zen teacher. <laughs> and who knows what else you do. And we were talking earlier about the group. Many of you know uh, Judith for a while, started uh, and then led the group at the Minnesota Zen Center and kind of a Buddhist cross-step group that's still flourishing today. And we're just talking how the, those three or four years where she was leading the group lives on on the internet, people finding the talks. And it's just uh, all these wonderful seeds. So thanks again, Judith, for being here tonight. I'll let you introduce the talk. Okay. Uh, I'd like to start with a little bit of a, a dedication. So may this gathering, may our talk, uh, the talk is mutually talking and listening. May that interaction uh, speak the Dharma, help us to clarify our lives, and to benefit all beings. Uh, Zen in the West is kind of formal in that way. We usually have a formal singing chant before the Dharma talk. So I feel like a rock star <laughs> Zen person in a Vipassana place. <laughs> so I'm uh, feeling a little uh, coffee turvy. <laughs> uh, you don't actually notice this too much from my point, but maybe you guys notice it a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I thought it would be fun, I hope it will be fun, to give a Zen talk at a Vipassana place. So I kind of did that on purpose. Um, uh, so I hope it turns out. I'll try my best. 
Uh, we're going to talk about a Zen koan, which you probably have heard of. These are the teaching stories uh, from the ancient ones about how they express the Dharma. So it's hard to express the Dharma, I think. It's hard to express non-duality uh, in my life, in my words. Um, so it's very interesting for me to go into the teachers and say, well, how did they say it? How, how did they express non-duality or uh, oneness or interdependence? So uh, for a Zeni, the stories are one way of learning how, what's the expression of an enlightened mind, how does that get expressed? So naturally they're not very intellectual because, uh, or I think this is common to both schools, that you can't understand the Dharma through your mind, right, through your discriminative thinking. Is that common to both schools? I think so. That you can't understand it. Like you can't understand, if I may say the word God in a Buddhist place, you can't understand that mystery through your frontal lobe. You have to understand it through your whole being. Body, mind, soul, spirit. Uh, in, Buddha, in Zen they often say, your eyes have to hear and your ears have to see. And they often talk about the eyebrows. The eyebrows are pretty useless. I'm sure there's some anatomical reason we have eyebrows. <laughs> but I can't think of anything particularly. And um, so that's, they always say like, and so he raised his eyebrows. So that's a Zen talk. Uh, the, the useless thing understands. So, um, so we're going to work with these paradoxical, hard to understand, perhaps hard to understand. Sometimes you get it right away. So we're going to work with the Zen Koan tonight, if that's okay with you, in a Vipassana place. Okay. Is that okay with you? <laughs> Do I have permission? Only to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about one of my favorite teachers, Joshu. Joshu in Japanese and Zhaozhou in Chinese. But I'm going to use the word Joshu because that's how I was introduced to him years ago. He's uh, lived in the 8th and 9th century in China. He's a Chinese teacher, Zen teacher. And maybe some of you know some of the Zen stories. His teacher was Nan Shuan, or Nansen in Japanese. And they had a wonderful relationship. There's a lot of koans between the, those two. And Matsu, or Baso, some might be uh, familiar, is Nansen's teacher. And Joshu was called, had a lot of names. He's very important, really, in Zen. Uh, we have uh, collections of these stories. This is the Blue Cliff Record. 
that's a hundred stories that one Zen teacher put together. There's the Book of Serenity, a hundred stories that another person put together. So there's a lot of these stories. And um, in these two main collections, Joshu has a lot. There's a lot of Joshu. There's like six or seven of them in the Blue Cliff Record. So he's quite famous. And what he's famous for, some Zen people are famous for yelling. Some Zen people are famous for hitting. Some Zen people, Zen teachers are famous for a gesture that they used over and over and over, like. So each teacher has his own style and a way of trying to communicate a non-dualistic understanding, an understanding that goes beyond words or goes beyond intellect. Joshu was famous for using words, and they had wonderful names for him, like uh, lips, lips, and mouth zen. That was one of his. Or silver tongue, the silver tongue teacher, because his answers, verbal answers, were so um, clear or sharp. So I, I study Joshu a lot. Uh, our June session at Hokyoji, we go to the monastery in the south. Uh, for the last three years, we've done Joshu, uh, Dokai and I. Uh, he loves Joshu too, so we're studying this particular teacher together. So we're going to work with the koan, Joshu's seven-pound cloth shirt. So I'd just like you, just before we start, to imagine a, a shirt that weighs seven pounds. Okay? What Could you put that on, a seven-pound shirt? So that's just the first imagining. So this is the story. And I'm going to spend 45 minutes or so unpacking the story. And the story is only uh, three sentences, so <laughs> we'll have a lot of time to understand the story. A monk asked Joshu, the myriad things return to one. Where does the one return to? Okay, let me say that line again. The myriad things return to one. Where does the one return to? I was thinking as I was sitting, that's like saying all the rivers return to the ocean. Where does the ocean go? So Joshu answered, when I was in Qingchao, I made a cloth shirt and it weighed seven pounds. So that's the answer. When I was in Qingzhou, I made a cloth shirt and it weighed seven pounds. Okay. 
Does anyone get it? (laughs) Now, it took me at least 30 years of studying Zen before I could even think that I would get these things. Uh, So, it's okay. You can uh, just hold it, but as I talk, I think you'll start to understand. So, how should I start with this? I'd like to say that Buddhist practice, or my understanding, is how do we bring the opposites, the constant opposite, opposites, duality, how do we work with that so we're not always torn? or fighting one side with the other side. Uh, That's the strategy for peace uh, that I had in the title, is how do we live in a dualistic world? Do you know what I mean? Night and day, peace and fighting, um, calm and restless, success and failure. We could go through the eight worldly winds, right? Uh, Success and failure pain uh, and pleasure, gain and loss, all the way the world is, is oppositional. And there's very little peace when your world is looking like that. And so Buddhism really tries to teach us, to help us see the world as a whole. see the dynamic working of the opposites that makes this awesome world of ours. And then even as I say, awesome world of ours, then what pops up in my mind over here is, it's not so awesome, it's terrible, read the newspaper. There's wars everywhere, everyone's getting sick now, there's old age, illness and death, I'm getting older, so that teacher teaching is looming at me. So right there is the paradox of uh, our minds and living in the human world. So as we study Buddhism, we try and find a way of holding the opposites in dynamism. Uh, Dogen, who's um, the main teacher of my school uh, from the 13th century, he calls it total dynamic working. I love that phrase. That's kind of when people say, what is God in Buddhism? I say total dynamic functioning, total dynamic working, this mysterious functioning of the world and the dynamism that happens between the opposites that makes this miracle, really, of our life. So sometimes I work with this sentence, this moment is complete, or this moment is whole. And uh, that's a good little sound bite for practice. This moment is whole. This moment is complete. So 
there's kind of a unifying uh, thing that happens as we begin to practice. Especially if you start sitting down and being quiet, you can begin to see a life, life energy, life beyond appearances. You can begin to see the way the world works and it's not totally like we thought or it's not totally like it appears. So as you begin to practice, then the duality comes up again uh, of, I want to be enlightened and I live in this deluded world. Or my mind's full of delusions and I want to be clear. So then this duality is quite uh, present. And I don't, sometimes I think practice doesn't help very much in terms of anxiety and uh, feeling that this moment is complete because I'm constantly wanting to be enlightened. I'm always directing myself towards that other thing that isn't my life. Or I want to transcend my life. That's another word we sometimes use. And for me, you know, I started Buddhism when I was very young, like 20. So I kind of grew up in Buddhism, so I don't know if this is immaturity, just being young, or if everyone goes through these stages. But when I first started, I really wanted to leave my life. My life was so filled with suffering that I thought anything but this. I want to go someplace else. And I interpreted Buddhism as going someplace else. As giving me some other way, place that would not be my life. So I, and then I spent 30 or 40 years um, saying, I, I want to be enlightened, I want to be enlightened. I'm not good enough, I'm not enlightened enough. So that dichotomy started playing out in that way. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? So that, so then I wasn't able to say this moment is complete and whole and interdynamic functioning. I was still leaning towards, I don't want to be where I am. I want to be somewhere else. So now, as I've matured and gotten older and gotten uh, more and more responsibility, I always laugh. You know, I came to Zen because I'm an introvert and wanted to be quiet. <laughs> and then, after 40 years, I am public speaking. You know, this is the fourth time this week I've public you know, and I have a lot of responsibility and it's very anxiety producing. So it's really challenging. How do you work with that? How do, now this is then, extroverted, a lot of responsibility. How, 
How do I be with that without compartmentalizing this is good and this is bad? This is what I want, this isn't what I want. You know, all of this going back and forth between the opposites. How can I live unified with everything that's going around us? Sometimes I use the language of construction and um, not constructing things construction and formlessness or openness. So the human world, what we do in the human world is construct things. Like you just constructed this place and it's a lot of weight, <laughs> you know? And there was a lot of had to go in to this, finances and contracts and people and sweeping and a lot had to happen to construct this sangha and this building and it's a good thing and how do you do that all the busyness of the human world constructing and dishes and mortgages and everything we do in the human world and keep in mind what we learn from sitting or what we learn from Dharma teaching, which is there's more going on here than just the form or just the outward show or just the construction. In fact, a lot of the times what we're trying to find is the unconstructed reality in Dharma, right? That's why we're sitting, trying to taste the spaciousness that's also present in this moment. Now I think that's the first sentence. The myriad things return to the one. So through practice, you can get the taste of what that oneness is. What that releasing of constructed world feels like. What I mean by that, I think Buddhism is kind of like deconstructing. The two things we deconstruct pretty clearly is we deconstruct time, right? Our ordinary sense of time gets deconstructed. And we also deconstruct place or body. Like the main teaching is there's no centralized self. So that's a deconstruction of how I feel this thing here. And for me, deconstructing time is so liberating, so wonderful for me, that I understand now that this literal sense of time isn't everything that's happening here. In fact, that literal sense of time, you know, this happens and that happens and that happens, um, that's part of what makes the story of my life so dense and heavy, like a seven pound shirt, heavy. But when I start to see that time is a mental construction, 
when I start to see that even the solidification of my body isn't really exactly what's happening through sitting and listening to Dharma teaching, then all of a sudden the world opens up in a different way. There's a really different sense of what's happening here. So then I feel what happens. So that's a stage in practice, I would say, that all of a sudden you have been sitting enough and you're, or I don't know what it takes, but all of a sudden you have this feeling of tasting interdependence or tasting spaciousness or tasting a quiet mind or tasting a different reality than you have experienced before. And then what happens? <laughs> then our mind says, I want that all the time. And then we have a new opposition going. This new space we are under starting to understand in our ordinary life, which is still filled with stories and problems and sickness and blah, blah, blah. So sometimes in our practice life, it seems really split. Like coming here, I feel great, and going home, I feel terrible. Of course, we're working on not having that be so polarized, right? But sometimes it feels like that. So in Buddhist language, in Zen language, the way that I've been hearing it lately is it's kind of like that old koan that you all know. And if you're kind of my age, you know it from Donovan. <laughs> First there was a mountain, then there was no mountain, then there was, right? So this is a famous Zen koan about First, we only see form life as solid and ordinary and oppressive in a way, very, very heavy, right? Like, how am I going to make this work here? And then the, the joke's on us, right? Even if we figure out how to make it work, then we have old age illness and death. What's that? I'm really mad about that, actually. <laughs> now that I'm turning 60, I'm really mad about that. I'm also mad about you invest all your energy into your children, and then they leave. I don't like that. I really, really don't like it. <laughs> Okay, where was I? <laughs> so how do we live with that fact? Right? That's, that's what's happening in the human story world. Right? So, so that is, first there was mountain. Then there was no mountain which is um, this understanding that something else is going on here also. 
something else is happening here that breaks apart time and breaks apart our solid idea of self, breaks apart our stories. We, you know, you start not believing your story. You know, I had a story, you bad girl, you bad girl, you bad girl. It re repeated so much with a repeat, uh, recorded message. Well, now I just say, I don't believe you. That Finally, I can say, I don't believe you story. There's a lot going on here that's more than my story. And because of sitting and immersing myself in the Dharma, I can see there's more going on here than my story, which is why I'm able to teach now. If I kept that story, I, I wouldn't be able to teach. So I see there's more going on here, and it's not too much about me. Me, me, me. This lecture is not about me. It's really about the interaction that's happening between the ancient teaching, you, how you're receiving it, how I'm understanding it. It's huge. It's how my teacher explained it to me. Many, many factors are happening in what I used to think was just a solid story about me. So that's, then there is no mountain. Did I do that well enough, the no mountain part? that you think the form is there and then all of a sudden you see that it's completely interrelated. There's a wonderful image. I think one thing different, I'm not sure, I'm not very well versed in Vipassana, but Zen is very poetic and imagistic. Like one of our big images is the green mountains are walking. You know? That's not, first there is a mountain. That's some kind of mixture with then there is no mountain, where you see the interdependence of everything, and you actually see the movement of the mountains, even though they're moving at geologic time, right? The deconstruction of time makes you see that nothing is solid. Nothing is as it actually, we think it appears. Lots is going on. Sometimes I laugh about cell phones. There's all these invisible things happening. We don't see it, right? We don't see it. But they are happening anyway. Then, you, then what happens after your mind opens up? After you start seeing life in a different way, then what happens? Well, in my in very immature self, my old immature Buddhist self, I, I don't know, do, do you start levitating? Like Shantideva, at the end of Shantideva, he actually levitates and you can only hear his voice. Is that what happens? It hasn't happened to me. So what happens? So, when all the myriad things return to the one, when you're seeing life at its most uh, 
basic energetic, I was going to say molecular, but you know, it goes beyond molecules now, right? Because they're saying even the nucleus, the, what are all those things? Electrons and all those things, they used to think were solid, right? The old science. The new science is totally Buddhist. <laughs> they go in there with these mega, mega scopes and they say, oh, there's nothing there. <laughs> nothing is solid. Uh, it changes in the observation. Now that's mindfulness proven by the telescopes. You know, they proved it. That when it's being watched, the energy of watching changes what's happening. So, so when you see the myriad things all returning to one, then what? This is a great issue in Zen because it's not just getting the insight, which is a event, right? It's a time like, oh, I sat for seven days on the fifth day, you know, I had this experience and it changed the way I do things, even if it's a little thing. Uh, but that's a, that's very narrow, isn't it? That's very time bound and it's like it's in the past. It's not in the past. It's actually happening every moment, your insight. But we don't feel it or see it in the same way. But the reality, this is very much Dogen, the reality is that in every moment that is happening. It doesn't go away. It's what life is. Uh, Katagiri Roshi used to say, life is lifing in every moment. Can we understand our life in that way? So my understanding of this con is very much uh, very Zen, which is the ordinary life and the sacred life or the profound realization in our ordinary life have to come together. They're completely dynamically working and they are not compartmentalized at all, ever. They're never separated from each other. So this is slightly different than the way we think, right? We think that maybe we think that when we go to the toilet, that's very profound. Uh, not profound, profane. <laughs> right? But in Zen, they say it's profound. Or, you know, we take ordinary things and we try and open them up so that each moment in our life we can see this coming together of the miraculous part of life and what we call the ordinary part of life. And neither of them are changed. They're working completely together. And I really love this because it gives me vitality 
to seize my own life as um, it, as spirituality. Whatever is happening to you, whatever your story is, that in itself is complete, is realization. Uh, Dogen calls, he puts practice and realization together as one word. Usually we think we practice, 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 and then we'll be realized. We'll be realized in the future. But Dogen says that's not the way it actually is. It actually is that we're practicing and we're realized at the same moment. How could it be otherwise? You can't like take the miracle of life away. Do you know what I mean? The miracle of life is always here, always here, always working. That's realization or enlightenment, always working. And we, uh, for me, I have to keep that understanding so that whatever I'm doing, as ordinary as it possibly could be, like sewing a shirt or constructing a human life, that construction is imbued with the non-constructed reality. And for me, that's enlightenment. When I know that and can lead my life with that kind of uh, view, right view, with that kind of attitude. So the myriad things return to the one. Where does the one return to? That's kind of a highfalutin question, isn't it? It's kind of a um, uh, very abstract question. And Joshu answers it with the most concrete, physical, ordinary answer. When I lived in Minneapolis, I made a seven-pound shirt. Now, how I view that is, when I lived in Minneapolis, I built a life. I participated in the human world of constructing a life. What does that mean? That means accepting your karma, knowing your unique situation and your unique personhood and your unique career. I made a life. And that life feels heavy sometimes. But that is the human world of construction. And it is completely imbued, always, every moment, with enlightenment. Practice and realization totally together. So, Katagiri Roshi said, Entering the mud and entering the water. So that is uh, what Dogen says, returning to delusion. After you had an experience that opens your mind, the next step is returning to delusion. 
Isn't that a beautiful thing? What does Dogen say? Let me tell you exactly what Dogen says. Because uh, I'm very into this. How is it when a person of great realization returns to delusion? How is it? Great realization and returning to delusion occur at the same time. So returning to delusion for me means that I enter my karmic life. I'm not trying to get rid of my karmic life. My karmic life is my one precious human life. I'm really into it. <laughs> this is it. Because I'm going to die. And then there won't be any Judith Regeer ever again. Do you know that they say Snowflakes are unique. Every single one is unique. Now, I don't believe it. But I looked it up several times in the science books, and they say every snowflake is unique. Every human being is unique. Really, even your, is it called doppelhanger? Doppelganger. You're not the same, even with your doppelganger. Or your twin. If any of you are identical twins, you know that you're not the same. So you return, you step into the mud of your karmic life. But you have a different mind. You see that everything in your karmic life is Buddha, is enlightenment, and wants to be taken care of. So this is now what Padagiri Roshi said. Entering the mud, entering the water, a bodhisattva enters this moment of life, going into delusion paying attention to the delusion and figuring out what each delusion needs to be taken care of with respect. Each moment, each thing, each person is an expression of eternity or the source of life. And we can see them that way and treat them that way. Each moment each thing, each person is the source. That's where the uh, one returns to. The one returns to this moment of phenomena that is arising in front of you. That is the practice, is seeing each moment of phenomena that is arising as Buddha, or as enlightenment. It's very hard to do, to see our grief as realization, or to see our sorrow as realization. 
to welcome that phenomena as uh, the vitality of life. But I think we can learn how to do that. That's what practice is for me, is learning how to receive every moment knowing that this moment is complete. This moment is realization, whether I know it or not. Right? How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? So when I first met Katagiri Roshi, my very first experience with him, I was about 22, I think. And I went to Sishin, and in uh, our retreats, you see the teacher one-on-one. So I was a very young girl. I had never sat before, and I was going in to see this Asian man. You know, it was very exotic in the early 70s. Anything exotic was cool then. (laughs) So I went to see him, and the room was dark. It was a little dark room, and I sat formally. You have to do three bows. It was very formal, and all he said to me was, you can't escape pain. And then he rang the bell. That was the signal you should leave. So that was my first experience with my teacher. You can't escape pain. If that's what you're coming to spiritual life for, sorry. It ain't going to happen. Do you know why? Buddha said it. There's old age, illness, and death. Everything is impermanent. And unless we can wrap our minds around that, we are going to really, really suffer. And we suffer anyway as human beings. But now I'm appreciating my suffering. Like, oh, life. Oh, this is my human, precious human life. I'm feeling what it means to be a human. Okay, bring it on. And I'm going to breathe. And I'm going to receive this as human life until the moment I die. I'm going to I'm going to receive my life. At the end of Katagiri Roshi's life, he had a very different message to me. He used to say, I would say the whole last two or three years of his life, he would say, just live. Practice is just live. Just live your life. Wholly, wholeheartedly live your life. And I think that's the same message as returning to delusion. That enlightenment is returning to your life with an open heart and understanding that each moment, each person, each phenomena is enlightenment itself. And for me, it's been very liberating to stop saying, I want to be enlightened. Because now I'm getting it, there's no future. It's now or never. (laughs) Enlightenment occurs right now. 
and there's no other place. And practice. If you say, well, I don't feel enlightened. Look, most of us don't feel enlightened, right? I'm practicing to be enlightened. But uh, Dogen was very clear that our effort is the moment of re the moment's realization. So practice is realization. That's why he called it. He put it together. If we're deconstructing time and we're deconstructing place, then whatever you're doing is realization. This has given me great freedom lately. I am not looking for anything else. It took me a long time to say what's happening in this moment is enlightenment. And I'm going to show up for it because it's my one chance. And I'm learning, I think you can learn through zazen, through meditation practice, you can learn how to hold all your emotions without freaking out. You can learn how to hold the whole, what does he say, the whole catastrophe with precious acknowledgement that the whole catastrophe is enlightenment itself. Just live. Uh, Reb Anderson, when he comes to speak, he just came last May. He's a, a what I call a big wig in the Zen community. His uh, new message that he said over and over was to live delusion authentically <laughs> is enlightenment. That was his message. To live delusion authentically. That means to live your karmic life freshly. To understand your karmic life not as a story that goes through time. All right. That, when I do that, my shirt is really heavy. But when I can see my karmic life as momentary arising, I can handle it. And I can, and I can see it as um, beautiful. Even when, ordinarily, I would label it ugly or I don't want this. I don't want my son to leave to go to college, period. And, oh, that feeling is so human. Like uh, Judith, that's my name. I say, Judith, uh, Heaven Children says, teach yourself the Dharma. I do that all the time. I say, Judith, how many parents? Century after century after century have let go of their children. Every single one of them. <clears throat> this is beautiful, even though it hurts right now. So do you see what I'm saying? You can pivot what you're experiencing with a new view of it. And I think that's liberation. But it's not like you go someplace else or you levitate or 
you don't have any human feelings anymore. So I'd like to read, uh, I still have a little time, I'd like to read the verse. So each of these koans also has some poetry that go with it, which is uh, a later Zen teacher commenting on the story. And this um, is something that uh, one person says. He wraps everything up. He is Joshu. Joshu wraps everything up and presses against the ancient old owl. A-W-L. They are, it's a tool that is long with a point at the end. I use it in sewing to do little things. And in carpentry, it digs in a hole, right? It digs down. Joshu wraps everything up and presses against the ancient old owl. How many people know the weight of the seven-pound shirt? Right now, I throw it down into West Lake. Or right now, I throw it into the Mississippi River. The pure wind of unburdening, to whom should it be imparted? I'll read it again. Joshu wraps everything up and presses against the ancient old owl. How many people know the weight of the seven-pound shirt? Right now, I throw it down into West Lake, the pure wind of unburdening. To whom should it be imparted? So there's a whole description of um, loading up and unloading in the commentary to this story. Loading up is the construction that we all do in the human world. Uh, and in Zen, for example, they call loading up writing commentaries on the case um, uh, having interactions with the students through words, uh, reading the sutras. You know, you can pile up this enormous effort of practice. is kind of loading up. But we need loading up. How many of us would be able to do this by ourselves without some talks or some guided meditations? We need the loading up. It's not that the loading up is bad. The loading up is, is necessary for extending the Dharma to the next generation. The words are necessary. The construction of our life is necessary. It's not something we want to throw away. So there's this loading up. But then, also, there's unloading. There's, in a minute, being able to throw the, what you've made, this very intense construction, you can just let it go. 
because you understand that it's just a construction. It's it's not actually um, real in the purest sense, right? In the purest sense, the present moment isn't even real. You can't find the present moment, even though we teach it. Please stay in the present moment. But there is no present moment because everything is changing. There's no solid thing. There is no being, right? If everything is interpenetrated, if I'm completely you and you're completely me, then there's no separate being. Although there's something here different from you. That's why we need both things. Both things are reality. Not one thing is and one thing isn't. They're both totally dynamically functioning together. And it's good for us to understand how to unburden. We do know how to burden pretty much, I think. But to learn how to unburden is liberation. But not to get stuck in unburdening. I think that's the point of this con. That we have to know how to unburden, but we have to take care of our karmic life exactly the way it is. We have to live who we are and what we're doing but with a large mind. Does that make any sense? It's a lot about not getting stuck on one side or the other because if you get stuck on enlightenment versus ordinary or ordinary and I don't believe in enlightenment, there's no freedom there. If you want to be free, it has to be totally fluid totally fluid and the way you get that fluid is by understanding that every phenomenon is realization and trying to actualize that in your life and so this is very zen how they end the koan Loading up means speaking for you of mind and nature, of mysteries and marvels, all sorts of expedient means, methods, and techniques. All this talk, commentaries on the sutra, you listening here, all of this is loading up. But say, but say, what is unloading? Go back to your places and look into this. <laughs> okay. So I'll just say in the end, I think Joshi was happy that he made a seven-pound shirt. I don't think he had a judgment about it. He just said, that's what I did with my life. I constructed a life. 
And that's what I did with my enlightenment. I turned around my enlightenment. This is Bodhisattva. This is Mahayana. I don't know if you have it in Vipassana, but for, for a Mahayana person, a Zen person, enlightenment is for the benefit of all beings. And it's not something you do for yourself. Because there is no self. That's a delusion. So when you get enlightened, you really get that, and then you can help all beings without any um, obstruction. One thing this koan has helped for me is I accept myself more now. I accept, I, I'm amazed to say this, and you know me for a long time, Wendy. I accept who I am now as my karmic seven-pound shirt. And I do the best I can. And I do now, most days, I'm able to throw the shirt in the Mississippi River when I need to. And otherwise, I put the shirt on and I work for the benefit of all beings. And that's kind of my life. And I stopped trying so hard to improve. It just is now who I am. Of course, I work on myself. You should only know how much I try and work on myself. But there's a different quality to it now. Now I realize it doesn't matter if I'm perfect anymore. And I'm not going to be. Already, I'm too old. It's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter if I can give my enlightenment or freedom to other people. It doesn't matter who I am, what my story is, where I came from. None of that really matters anymore very much. And uh, I feel blessed that I understand that before I die. That um, centralizing around myself is a delusion. And I don't have to do it anymore. So I can make a seven-pound shirt, and I can throw it into the Mississippi River, and I can make it again, and I can throw it away again, fluidly. So then my life feels very liberated, because I have a lot of options of what to do. OK, so would someone like to make a statement or ask a question? Yes. Um, is there any moment in which you can experience this realization that everybody is going to have The evil question. Uh -huh. The question is when evil things happen, how does that fit in with this uh, idea that that's realization? Uh, often it comes up as, is Hitler uh, enlightened? So, let me take a drink of water. This is the deep one.
the world of samsara. Do you know that word? Samsara? Okay, because if you don't, I'll use a different world. But the world of delusion or samsara or suffering is a world that is made up of humans thinking their self and acting according to their own desires and according to their own defenses of their self. So often it can turn into evil things. Also those people were not taught in a way to, to do anything other than that. I, I work in the prison so I, I see this. So the world of samsara is this storied world where everyone's out for themselves and evil things happen. Bad things happen in that construction. Now, as, as what I'm saying is that is something we have to live with and accept that when humans are acting like that that wars happen, rape happens, all this terrible stuff that we read in the newspaper. And I think it's our obligation to try to, the three pure precepts, try not to harm others, to do good, and to help people. This is basic Buddhist ethics. And at the same time that that layer of ugliness is happening, at the same time, the natural mystery of the world is also occurring. I just take, oh, just I brought up Hitler, you know, the archetypal evil person of the 20th century. Even with him, his heart was pumping, the nervous system was working. You know, there was an expression of Buddha nature. Everything working together. So I think for me it's helpful that I understand that whether it's evil or whether it's good, whatever my judgments are, that I understand that every moment is interdependent co-origination, that both things are happening in every moment, even in a war, in a war zone. The mystery of life is pumping away underneath this layer of egotism that humans do. Now what I like to do is get even larger than that and say, if human evil, human egocentricity, blows up this planet, uh, does Buddha nature go away? I have to say no. The world, the universe, is going to be pumping around, and maybe in what, I don't even know what they say, 500,000 years, or 700 kalpas, another earth will arise and humans will be there again and the same situation will occur. So that's how I think of it, that 
I have to have a very, very large mind to accept what humans do to each other. And I have a responsibility to work for the good in human civilization. But um, it's not, it's just like tornadoes and volcanoes and other disasters. Does that suit you, or would you like to reply? Well, you know, it takes a big mind. Do you know what I mean by a big mind? A huge mind to accept human civilization the way it is. But, A, I want to do that because I want to own my precious human life, and also that's the only way to help. So, for example, when I go to the prisons, or when my husband goes to the prisons, um, you know, you can find out what everyone did. It's public information. So sometimes we look up what these guys did. You know, and it's terrible. Terrible. But we know them as humans. So, what do you do there? You try and help them reconstruct their life in a different way but and karmically they're culpable is that the right word you have to uh, own take responsibility for what you've done <coughs> I haven't read the book yet. I just got it in the mail. Stephen Batchelor's book on consorting with the devil or dancing with the devil. It's a uh, contemplation on good and evil from a Buddhist point of view. So I'm interested in reading it. Nobody else? Yeah. I wanted to say thank you. This is the first time I've ever heard a koan explained where I've understood. And that's a great gift. It actually makes me think, well, maybe I should read a few of those things. Uh -huh. And I never imagined that I would have a wish to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Zen is very different than Vipassana, from what I gather. And you can tell me I'm full of it if you want to, but uh, it, especially Dogen Zen, which is my tradition, they just throw you in to the great ocean of emptiness and say, figure it out, right? And, they, and the teaching is with these poetic images and, um, you know, like a seven-pound shirt. After I studied the koan, I'll never forget that image of a seven-pound shirt. The positive part of it, which is the construction of the human world, and the part of it that means can you just throw it in the lake whenever you need to. You know, So these images are what teach us in Zen. And there's not a sense of development. Stages, like Dogen hated stages. He said, how can there be stages in practice? You know. First you work on this, and then you work on this, and then you work on this. He was into, there's no time, so how can there be stages? 
this moment is it. But that's very different than, uh, and sometimes I long for development and technique. Uh, so I do study Vipassana sometimes because they are so clear about what's happening, what you should be doing. And uh, Zen is not like that. But I get a lot from Zen too. It's very much about ordinary life, how you express your understanding in ordinary life, how you sweep the floor, how you do your budget, do you, how you do your life. That's what Zen's emphasis is on that. I think that's true, though, through mindfulness, too. So, and I think in the West, we're getting closer and closer anyway. It's not as sectarian as it is in Asia. Because they're not the melting pot. You know, Buddhism is going through American melting pot. I can come over here and learn Vipassana. But in Asia, they had to, you know, they had to walk three years. If they were a Zen person, they couldn't get to uh, Thailand. So there was no cross-fertilization. Uh, and in America, there's just tons of it going on right now. So I think we're kind of brewing an American Buddhism that's mixed up. <laughs> in the most positive way. We're sharing our seven pound shirts together. Yeah. And our ability to throw them in the Mississippi River. I always, with the seven pound shirt, I, 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 well, I'm going to talk about this on Sunday at Clouds. We're having our annual meeting. And I thought, oh, the seven pound shirt is exactly, you know, even to make one of these little places, not-for-profit little places, there's so much effort and work and conflicts and uh, different opinions about what to do and all this stuff. But we don't want to not do it. We have to do it. That's human life. But how we do it, how attached we are to our opinion, how we deal with conflict, that's uh, very exciting to try and do it differently. It's an experiment. Yes. Um, so when you were, when we have a moment of clarity, when we can see the you know, interrelatedness of understanding, and then it goes away. So. What you were saying is that that's both both of those things are part of our enlightenment. What you're saying? Yes, yes, and that it doesn't go away. You just aren't recognizing it. But uh, the great realization, the great reality, is pumping away every moment. And we can turn our minds to that idea more and more. Isn't there that, you know, and forget less? Uh, that's part of pra practices, remembering more. <coughs> like when I'm in the middle of, what, shouting at my 15-year-old, can I remember something different right there? Although I think shouting at your 15-year-old is okay, too. That's part of 
How many parents are in here? Have you ever shouted at your 15-year-old? That is life. And I'm not going to be this wonderful mom that never shouts at her kids. It doesn't exist. And if it does exist, I'm suspect. <laughs> like, what's going on there that they never yell at each other? This is part of the mishmash. But, what's the but? It's not the first mountain, though. Right? The first mountain is just in dreamland where you don't understand what's going on, where um, impermanence you fight, uh, status and achievement are very important to the ego's identity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this process where you begin to work your life in a different way. But it's still the same life. Did that, do you have a second yeah, question? Yeah, I, I just, it kind of gave me um, relief that, you know, some, when you have that moment of clarity, you want to, like, oh. And then when it slips away, you go, oh, but I want to oh, keep that. Right. And um, it, it kind of eases, you know, my anxiety to be perfect or whatever, or to, to be in that state. That it's, all of life. I mean, the delusion is part of being life. So even though I also it's find know your delusion, I guess. <laughs> I also find that liberating. But I, I try and remember that every moment is complete, just the way it is. Whether I understand it or not, whether I'm clear about it or not, I can at least be clear about that that whether I'm in a fog or really taken over by my emotion, uh, Buddha nature is, is still there. And I think that knowledge helps me stay clearer. image that came up while you were talking was a memory when I was about 19 and I was practicing in this uh, uh, sitting, I don't know if you can say I was practicing in a Chinese monastery in Singapore and it came up when you were talking about what's profound and what's profane and there was an altar there and the altar had this beautiful looked like a bronze Zhou dynasty incense burner carved with animal masks around it. And then sitting right next to it was an oval tin can with sand in it that was an incense burner. <laughs> and I was looking at behind you at this beautiful piece of wood, this shelf, and the flowers, and this animated vase, this Buddha. It would be as if right, there's like a Maxwell House can of coffee <laughs> with incense sticking out. And I, was, and I remember just thinking, oh, it's this kind of kitschy thing that they do. And as you were talking, I realized it's more than a kitchen thing. Uh -huh. It's that there was no dissonance. There was no need to honor something, and it was no dishonor to put an oval team ham next to it, uh -huh. next to the Joe Dynasty bronze. Joe Dynasty, you probably expect that. They both coexist uh -huh. side by side. There's a neat story about 
Yamada Roshi, I'm not exactly sure which Roshi, but an Asian Roshi, older Asian Roshi, he's now passed on, but in the 80s he came to America to teach. And uh, one of the stories from him is they were traveling, you know, they were taking him around, like five people and him in a car, going from Zen Center to Zen Center. And they, he said, I'm really hungry. And he said, why don't we stop there? And he was pointing to a McDonald's. And, you know, the other five people were like horrified. They're going to take the Roshi, you know, to McDonald's and they're going to eat hamburgers? Forget, you know, that's completely a no-no. And he insisted that they go to McDonald's. And they went in and they bought the food and they went onto a bench. It was in the summer and they sat on the bench. And uh, in Zen, we have oriyoki, which is a very formalized way of eating, where uh, it's kind of like tea ceremony. Every It's very formal with three bowls, and your chopsticks go just here. I, I do it, and I love it, but it's quite ritualized. And basically, he did oriyoki with McDonald's <laughs> and all of his students. And it just really opened their mind. I don't exactly know how he did it, but <laughs> I, I have a feeling, you know, it's wrapped in paper, and you can, uh, you could, he could do the lotus on the paper. <laughs> so, yes. I'm not a very ritualistic kind of person, so I'm curious. I saw that this community watched, did you already watch Departures, that yeah. movie? Yeah. 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 I think that movie explains ritual the best of anything I've ever seen. Departures? Yeah. It's a movie, it's a Japanese movie about the ritual of preparing a dead body for the coffin. Um, and I just say that because when I saw that movie, I just saw it and I thought, oh my God, this is exactly about Japanese ritual, which is what Zen does. And I thought people would get it, I think, if they saw this movie. So I recommend that movie. But... Um, what do I want to say about ritual? Well, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Is that in Theravadan, too? The, not so much the Prajnaparamita, but... But it's there. But it's there, right. So, the form of something is the conduit for... Um, the Buddha nature to use. So that's what I was talking about today. Our life, our five skandhas, our karma can be used, we're the form, and the total dynamic working can use us to participate in life. So the form of something is can be used to express um, life. So 
invent, for example, the morning ritual that we do. Uh, bowing, we do bows, we chant the confession chant, we take the three refuges and we do the four, four bodhisattva precepts and we chant uh, the Mahaprajna Paramita. So that is something we do every morning in a ritualized form and it is an expression of um, uh, dropping my individuality, joining the community, doing everything that the community does, and this repeat of these prayers day after day, they enter you in a very different way if you do them over and over. You do them if you're happy, you do them if you're sad. You do them if you just got married, you do them if your dad just died. You do them under any condition, but you do the same form every morning. And there's something that is an expression of the timeless, endless, birthless yo of that. Yo. Yo is the functioning of life. So we give it a form, and we do it every day, and there's, you, it's a surrender, kind of a surrender. So it's a teaching. It's a teaching, and it's really egolessness. It's an expression of egolessness. I say that, and yet it's very devotional. So then, uh, it's hard to find sometimes if you'll come to a Zen center. I think people feel like Zen centers are cold. But where's the heart of a Zen center? It's in these, uh, the liturgy. It's in that we bow. We put our head to the ground a lot. That's a physical expression of humility, of awe, of gratitude that we do over and over. Um, and I say that the liturgy is egoless because you're doing exactly what everyone else is doing. But for me, it's also the heart. I feel so much devotion when I do that. Like, I could just do it all the time because it's become um, the expression of my gratitude and of my receiving of the awe of life. And if you do it every morning, it really transcends conditions, transcends samsara conditions, because you just do it, you do it, you do it. So how's that? Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the movie. Oh. <laughs> it's sad. I bring Kleenex. Yes. The empty emptiness is coming through the form. They're completely unified. They're completely unified. And because you're doing the forms over and over and over in all kinds of conditions, you start to feel the um, uh, the thing that never changes, you start to feel. Uh, I'll just say one thing again. When Katagiri Roshi, he was in the monastery 
And then the war came, and he was a, um, a pilot in the war. He wasn't kamikaze, thank God, but he, he did do the war. And then he came back to the monastery, and he said the monastery was exactly the same before the war and after the war. The forms were the same. So in that sense, that's an expression of this seamless, continuous, no form. So they they have to be together. If they're not together, then it's not Buddhism, from my understanding. And in our minds, if they're not together, we don't understand it. They're completely co-arise. So let's, uh, I'll sing my merit offering song to end. <laughs> May the merit of this penetrate into each and everything and all places so that we and the world together may realize the Buddha way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judith. What a gift. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your practice with us thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate